All right. Well, thank you for your kind words. Uh, we are very privileged to serve a great God, aren't we? And in fact, as I just reflected, we never made one sacrifice. We really didn't, right? We don't know sacrifice. There was only one sacrifice made, and David Livingston made this observation. He was talked about, and people said, oh, all these things you did, you left your homeland, you stayed in Africa for all these years. He said, there's only one sacrifice. And that sacrifice was the one that was made by Christ on the cross. And that's the perspective, isn't it? We didn't go through any sacrifice whatsoever, but only the joy of serving our great Savior, uh, who to know and love and serve is everything. And so we're glad we can be here with you this retreat. We're overjoyed with the fellowship, with the things we've been learning and seeing. Wow, how God has blessed you with new children, little ones, you know, just popping out everywhere. And this is the future of your church. These are the future leaders, and so I rejoice with you, and I hope that bug bites us somehow and we can take it back to Michigan with us, okay? We have a few coming. We're thankful for that, and uh, what a joy is how God builds his church and blesses his church when his work is done his way. So what a blessing to be there, here together with you, and be able to rejoice with you in what God has done for his glory. When we continue in our focus of worshiping God, his way, for his glory, as he has prescribed for us in his truth in the scriptures, and we're thankful for how clear it is, how we can go there, how we can open it and see this is what God says of himself, and this, therefore, is how we are to respond with lives of worship and obedience to him. Now, we understand that as Christians, as we look at the word, as we look at worship, as we look at what we're supposed to be all about as Christians, it runs completely cross-grain to the message that our contemporary culture continually throws at us. It's completely at odds with the message that the world and even cultural Christianity has for us. In his book, God in the Whirlwind, David Wells describes how our society propagates a loving God who is not judgmental. Instead, he is made out to be a distant being who tolerates virtually everything, virtually everything. In other words, it doesn't really matter how you choose to live your life. That's your own business. The morals that you choose or don't choose to follow, it's up to you. And the God of this age rather exists merely to provide you with iPods, with iPads, with iPhones, and with anything else that would make you feel good about yourself. This is often the way that people in our society around us view God. He's a God who exists to make me happy. Every week, Pastor Joel Osteen pumps into his worldwide following of 200 million the deadly spiel, God exists for you. God exists for you. And by the way, if you've ever seen one of his services broadcasted, well, I saw one time about 10 minutes, that was enough. The first three minutes was absolutely incredible. The congregation arose with their Bibles and they confessed the word of God to be the true word of God. And I thought, this is amazing. They sat down, and then what followed afterwards was everything but hearing the word of God. There's a persuasive, pervasive heresy of a God who makes no demands on our lives, and we see that incipient at every level around us. It's as a deadly snake in the grass, it has slithered into our government, into our schools, and even into many churches across our land. Yet wrong thinking about God always produces long, wrong living before God. You cannot think wrongly about God and live rightly before Him. Integrity, holiness, and justice are replaced by lives of impurity, evil, and compromise when you have a wrong view 
of a God who is tolerant, a God who says, whatever you want to do, as you choose to live, go ahead. Church, it's time for us to hear God counter the lies of culture with his truth. What God says ought to be characteristic of a Christian, how a Christian lives before him, a life that is marked by integrity and therefore a life that is lived in worship before him that is acceptable. So look with me to our text this, this evening in Psalm 101. Psalm 101. Here we meet the living God is in his majestic glory. And when we do so, we respond with lives of personal integrity and passionate worship. Personal integrity, passionate worship flow from understanding God in his glory for who he is in all of his holiness. And so let's look together at Psalm 101. A Psalm of David. I will sing of, the, of loving kindness and justice to you, O Lord. I will sing praises. I will give heed to the blameless way. When will you come to me? I will walk within my house in the integrity of my heart. I will set no worthless thing before my eyes. I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not fasten its grip on me. A perverse heart shall depart from me. I will know no evil. Whoever secretly slanders his neighbor, him I will destroy. No one who has a haughty look and an arrogant heart will I endure. My eyes shall be upon the faithful of the land, that they may dwell with me. He who walks in a blameless way is the one who will minister to me. He who practices deceit shall not dwell within my house. He who speaks falsehood shall not maintain his position before me. Every morning I will destroy all the wicked of the land, so as to cut off from the city of the Lord all those who do iniquity. From these inspired words of our text that we have just read, we'll focus on three elements of a life that is marked by integrity and therefore a life that worships God rightly. Three marks of a life that is marked by integrity and worships God rightly. We'll look in verse 1 at the praise, followed by the pattern in verses 2 through 4, and then the practice in verses 5 through 8. The praise, the pattern, and the practice of a life of integrity. We could also look at it this way. Verses 1 through 4 describe integrity at home. And verses 5 through 8 depict integrity on the throne. Integrity at home, in David's home, and then integrity on his throne. Now what is it that prompted David to write these words? It's fascinating to do background studies and try to put together what preceded the Psalms being written. And many times we read and study the Psalm and then understand what's going in on that, and, and then we work backwards from that. The best that scholars can discern as we look at this psalm, it would have been after David was a fugitive, hiding from King Saul, who wanted to kill him. Remember, he wanted him dead. And then God, through Samuel, affirms that, Samuel, that, Saul would, that David would be the next king and anoints him, prepares him for that kingship. So this psalm is a royal psalm. It's a psalm that speaks of King David, who would reign on the throne. He's the new monarch over God's people. And he desires to lead God's people, God's way, in a way that's marked by integrity. Now, it may have been a coronation speech that was used when David was actually crowned king, when David affirmed the fact that he would lead God's people with a resolute heart unmarked by compromise with sin. 
That's the likely backdrop before David penned this psalm. It's a code of conduct, a standard for the king to keep before and to live by. Now, though this psalm, though the original design focuses on David's reigning and kingship, it has a timeless message that speaks to us today. It's also for us this evening. For God calls you, Christian, to a life of complete integrity. Integrity in the home, integrity in class, in church, in the office, in my team, wherever you are. God says, Christian, you as my child must live a life that is defined by total integrity. Well, let's look at it now. The first psalm launches off and actually sets the whole stage for what's going on. David declares, I will sing. I will sing. That's what begins the psalm that's going to go into integrity. And I know that you as a church, you as God's people, you love to sing. And I bless God for that. Because singing is a gift that he has given his people to enjoy and to make much of him in. And here in verse 1, I believe we see right here a compact theology of singing. Right? Three things about singing that God says, this is the kind of singing that pleases me. Three things here. It defines for us the purpose and point of singing from God's perspective. So what are they? First of all, from verse 1 right there, singing that God loves to hear is singing that is active, not passive. David is not viewing himself as some spectator and seeing, seeing, singing as some means of entertainment. He's not getting some Jerusalem quartet to come and say, okay, guys, crank up the songs. I want to be entertained by the music. It's active. David says, I will sing. I will sing praise. There's no passiveness here. Secondly, what is it that David is singing about? It's active. What is he singing about? It's not about his plans for building a palace, not about protection for his kingdom. It's not about privileges of being a king. He says, I will sing of what? What does he say he will sing about? Two things, of loving kindness and justice. He is singing about God's perfections. He is celebrating God in his singing. The first is loving kindness. We know that word, hesed. It's used over 200 times in the Old Testament. It speaks of God's loyal love for his people. His great faithfulness to his own. And we don't use that word loving kindness that much. It's a compound word. We have all of God's love and all of God's kindness, and we merge them together. Listen, if God wasn't a God of loving kindness, we would have no hope. Because Jeremiah, in Lamentations 3, says, This I recall to my mind, and therefore I have hope. And what does he recall to his mind? The Lord's loving kindness indeed never ceases. For his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Christian, we're to sing of God's loving kindness because that gives us hope. David wandered in the dry Judean wilderness. And he was refreshed by the reminder of God's loving kindness to him, even in that situation. Psalm 63, verse 3. He says, because your loving kindness is, watch now, your loving kindness is better than life. I will praise you. Can you say that tonight? God, your loving kindness to me is better than my life, and therefore I praise you. So David sings out of a heart overwhelmed with God's unfailing love, his loving kindness. 
But he knows that God is not just a God of love as our society often wants to paint it out to be. He's just a loving God who embraces and tolerates anything. God also, excuse me, David also sings of God's justice, his justice. If our worship is to be pleasing to God, we must grasp not only God's love, but also his justice. He's a God that is just. This is a legal term. It pictures God who always makes the bright and perfect choice. That's what his justice is about. He upholds perfect integrity. Do you remember what happened when Abraham understood that God wanted to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, particularly Sodom? Abraham appeals to God in Genesis 18, and he says, Far be it from you to do such a thing, to slay the righteous with the unrighteous. And he says this, Far be it from you, shall not the judge of all the earth do what? Do justly. God, you cannot do that. Because I think there are a lot of people that love you in Sodom. He was wrong. He says, Therefore, God, you cannot do what is unjust. He held God to his character of being just. So to David is profoundly in awe of God's justice and unfailing love for him and for God's people. So we see that the scene that God, God loves is active. The scene that, God's love, that God loves is about him and his attributes. And thirdly, the scene that God loves to hear has at its audience what? Look at the right audience. He says in verse 1, to you, O Lord, I will sing praises. There it is. Our praises are to God himself. He is the audience of one who hears our praises and worship. And we know this, but we need the reminder of this constantly. God hears our praises. God sees into our heart and accepts that as acceptable worship when it comes from hearts that are living in integrity before him. Now turn back to Psalm 96, a couple of pages. Look at how we see here, how we see this praise lived out, seeing to the Lord as the audience of one. And this is repeated. Look at how many times in 96 verses 1 and 2. The psalmist says, sing to the Lord. There it is. To the Lord a new song. Secondly, sing to the Lord all the earth. Verse 2. Sing to the Lord. Bless his name. Proclaim good tidings of his salvation from day to day. Three times in two verses, sing to the Lord. Christian, I understand. I've never sung in a choir apart from when my parents forced me to when I was like in third grade, you know. They let everybody join the choir even if you couldn't sing right or not, just a joyful noise. You may not be able to carry a perfect tune. You may not even be able to, you know, know the right note you're supposed to sing. But God, from this psalm in verse 1, calls you to sing songs of praises to him. He longs for that. He wants to hear that from you. Not just on Sundays, but every day of your life. Sing praises to God was worthy of those. He loves to hear our lives committed to that and our lips that exude praise to his name. In Psalm 146, verses 1 and 2, we're told, Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul. I will, sing, I will praise the Lord while I have my being. I'll sing praises to God, he says. The commitment there is, as long as God gives me breath, the reason I live is to sing praises to him. From a life of praise, we now move to a, the pattern, the pattern of personal integrity. The pattern of personal integrity. And here's where it gets into the hard issues. David has just sung of two attributes of God, God's love, loving kindness, and God's justice. 
And now in verse 2, he's saying, that's the way I want to live my life and rule my kingdom. I want what I'm seeing of God and God's characteristic, I want that to be true in my own life. I will make it my business to imitate God in my standard as king of this country. Now notice the pledge. Look what he says. He makes that here in the first phrase of, of the second verse. He says, I will give heed to the blameless way. I will give heed to the blameless way. Give heed here is a wisdom term. It implies showing caution and careful insight in how you go about living, being careful. David is taking pains to be sure his living before God is blameless. There's no compromise. There's no sin. He is passionately pursuing a life of personal purity. This is a king of the land and saying, I'm concerned at this point with my heart how God sees my heart. He says, I want to be blameless before God. That term blameless is used in the Old Testament to describe the unblemished offerings presented to God. There could be no defilement, no taint of anything wrong with them. David says, I want my life to be like that, a perfect unblemished offering before God. And we need to understand here, David is not saying that he's trying to attain to some level of sinless living of perfectionism. He doesn't embrace that. We know that. That's not possible this side of heaven. What he's saying here in verse 2 is he's refusing to tolerate a life of compromise in any way. He will not compromise with sin. He refuses to. He abhors that. David knows he cannot live, he cannot rule his kingdom in a way that is compromised and please God and worship God. The two do not go together. He knows that. And so David goes on, he asks God, one question in this entire psalm we find here, when will you come to me? He's talking to God, God, when will you come to me? The only question, and this is key because we see here, he realizes he desperately needs God's help to live a life of integrity and no compromise. God, when will you personally come and meet with me? That's his question. What's God's answer? Does God answer that question? Does God come to David? Do we have any evidence that God personally comes, answers his prayer, and meets with him and deals with him in this area of longing to be blameless before God? 1 Samuel 18, verse 14, tells us this. David was prospering in all his ways, for the Lord was with him. God came to him, was with him. 1 Samuel 18, verse 14 tells us, God heard his prayer and met with him personally. And worked in his heart, a heart of purity and of free from compromise. Here's the point right here. David knows he needs God's assurance that God is present with him, that God's power is with him as he goes to reign this kingdom, that he will not compromise with sin. And Christian, we need the same. We need God's promise that he is with us, that he will not leave us at any point, And we have that from God. Hebrews 13, verse 5, the promise there is clear. I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. The great commission before Christ ascended into heaven, he says, I am with you always. We always have God's personal presence with us, and that is the assurance we need to remember. He therefore protects our hearts from compromise, from any compromise and lack of integrity. Now here's where we need to see David's heart for God's sore. 
Look at verse 2. He commits himself to all-out integrity beginning where? At home. He says, God, come to me. I need you. And then he's going to talk about where he needs God to make him a man of integrity. Look at verse 2. Look at his pledge to God. I will walk within my house in the integrity of my heart. He says, God, it's got to start at home. God, I will walk before you with your help in the integrity of my heart at home. I will live a life of no compromise. I will not be tainted by sin as a father, as a husband, at home with those that I have as my servants. He's making no allowance for corruption to creep into his life and home. He's drawing a line in the sand saying, I will not go there even at home with sin. This is a kind of commitment that cannot be bought. He's resolute in his thinking, the kind of man he wants to be on the home front. It cannot be bought. It was in January 1937. The New York syndicated newspaper columnist O. McIntyre received a note that he then submitted in his local newspaper. And it described a popular American actress in conversation with the Canadian politician Lord Beaverbrook. And it read as follows, and I quote, Beaverbrook, Beaverbrook asked this lady, this actress, in a game of hypothetical questions, would you sleep with a stranger if he paid you one million pounds? She thought about it a while, and she said to Lord Beaverbrook, I would, I would. And then he proceeded, and he said, well, if he paid you five pounds, then the lady became irate. Five pounds? Who do you think I am? Beaverbrook replied, we've already established that. Now we are only seeking to, to determine the price. You've already sold out. It's already clear the price has already been. You've already said you're willing to go there at some price. There's a compromise there in the character. The upright Christian man or woman will not give in, will not compromise at any price. For there is a non-negotiable commitment and refusal not to compromise with sin. And we need to highlight the context of David's commitment to make it real clear. He is not talking about who he is on the outside in the public arena. What people think of him in public, but what he truly is in private. His first concern in this psalm for integrity is not the throne, but the home. The home. And men and women, this must be the same for us before God. Christian, your primary focus in pursuing a life of integrity isn't what other friends and acquaintances out there think of you. It's not what they think who you are. It should be what your family knows to be true of you. For they are the ones who hear and see you for who you really are. It was so easy to give, right, give impressions to people out there who we work with and talk with at the job or in the neighborhood. But the home front is where integrity truly shows itself. Job's life showed integrity. And in Job chapter 1, would you look there with me? I want you to see with me, with your own eyes, his careful commitment in the home not to compromise. So concerned that there'd be anything in his life, anything with his children, that would be a life of lacking integrity. Job chapter 1. We'll begin in verse 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless, upright, fearing God and turning away from evil. 
Seven sons and three daughters were born to him. Now move down to verse 5. When the days of feasting had completed their cycle, Job would send and consecrate them, rising up early in the morning and offering burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, perhaps my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Look at that. What a model for us. His concern that was that his kids weren't walking in true integrity in their hearts before God. Therefore, he's offering sacrifice to God, saying, God, I just want my home to be what you want it to be. He was committed to total integrity in his home with his family. We can make others think a certain thing, but it's what happens at home when our families, wives and husbands and children know to be true of us. That is the true estimate of integrity. It is the domestic arena where we really are, where that comes out. There is where it is shown. Let me be real specific and encouraging. Husbands and wives, God has given you to each other. And part of the reason, it's all for his glory, but part of the reason is to help each other be sure you're living a life of integrity and guarding against any sort of compromise and hypocrisy. Husbands and wives, don't let yourselves or your spouses in any way tolerate two-faced living. Anywhere you see hypocrisy in your own life or in your spouse's wife, lovingly, graciously deal with that. Deal with the heart issues, what God sees in the heart that's what we see the heart concern of King David here before us. Now it gets into the nitty-gritty of his life. And in verses 3 through 4, he gives us some negative standards of a life that embraces integrity. Five negative standards of a life that is committed to true integrity. All written in the negative, he says, he's saying, I will not go there and there and there and there and there. Let's look at them together. First of all, verse 3. He says, I will set no worthless thing before my eyes. David is totally emphatic. He refuses to give sin a place in his heart or his home. No worthless thing he will allow to be before his eyes. What is that word worthless talking about? The word is belial. belial. It means vile and wicked. The same word is used to speak of Satan by the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 6, verse 15. Or what, testim- or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has the believer in common with an unbeliever? It's talking about what is extremely vile and horrid. The answer is none. Therefore, to please Christ, you better not put what he hates before your eyes. No worthless thing before your eyes. That is the call in David's heart to his own soul, to his family, and to us even this evening. Nothing evil before our eyes. In Isaiah 33, verse 15, God through that prophet describes one who walks in integrity, and he says this. He walks in integrity by, and I quote, shutting his eyes from looking at evil. A person who's walking in integrity is shutting his eyes at looking at evil. Shutting his eyes at looking from evil. He will not look at evil. He closes his eyes. So specific, so tangible. Let's apply this right now. The next time you're in an environment, whether purposeful or not purposeful, and some scene comes before your eyes, and you know it's not pleasing to the Lord, what is your first response to ought to be? 
Shut the peepers. Close your eyes. Turn away from evil. For what you take in with your eyes, Christians, always has a powerful effect upon your life and your worship before God. Close your eyes. Let no worthless thing come before your eyes. You fill your mind with godless images, and that will kill your affections for God and your worship of God. No no worthless thing before your eyes, David says to us. Christians, this is deadly serious. We must guard our hearts and guard our eyes against straying far from God by anything that would be tantalizing the flesh. And that primarily is through the eye gate. Romans 13 verse 14 puts it this way. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. That includes every form of evil, be it compromising subject matter in movies, on YouTube, on Pinterest, whether Snapchats, magazines, blogs, whatever it might be. Social media is a killer in terms of the lust of flesh that hammers our eyes. God says no worthless thing, Christian. Don't let that come before your eyes. It's so seductive, so dangerous, so alluring for the Christian. Guard your heart, Christian. Men and women, owe to God that we would be those that are marked by vigilance in guarding our eyes and staying far from any images that assault our minds and take us far from God in our worship of him. Listen, if the Lord Jesus Christ would not be comfortable viewing what you view, then you better stop viewing it. You better be done with it. Put it away because it is worthless. The apostle Peter reminds us in 1 Peter 1, verse 15, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. There is the high calling of God to us tonight. Be holy as Christ is holy. They used to sing a song years ago. I don't think they sing it anymore. When I was a kid in Sunday school, I grew up in Sunday school. You know, all the tunes you remember, and they're for life. You know, they're just kind of embedded in, a, in your memory. And one of the ones we used to always sing was, Oh, be careful, little eyes. Do they still sing that in Sunday school? Okay, wonderful. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. For your Father up above is looking down in tender love. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. We need to remember, not just the little ones, but older ones, adults, be careful what we see with our eyes. The second negative attitude towards sin, there David declares, I hate the work of those who fall away. This is here amazing. It tells us David detests what was done by those who stray from God. He hates it. He despises any rebellion, whether it's subtle or whether it's blatant. He wants nothing to do with it. And then he goes further. He says, and I only hate it. He says, it will not fasten its grip on me. In other words, I refuse to let the tentacles of sin wrap their arms around me. I will not tolerate that for a second. Remember Joseph? They're in a privileged position. They're in the palace of Potiphar. Potiphar goes after him with her seductive ways and tries to get her hands on him. What does Joseph do? He hightails it out of there, even if it meant leaving behind his robe. Genesis 39 tells us that. The fear of God is what motivated him to run from sin. 
Friends, don't dare make deals with sin. Don't give it an inch. Don't dare. Don't deviate from the course of godliness. You begin to deviate from the course of holiness and purity and integrity, and gradually over time, it'll take you far from God and far from a heart that worships God in spirit and in truth. There was a dog sled team that used to pull men in Alaska across the distant land, distant ice. And on this dog sled team, there was one lead dog who had a, who had a propensity always to veer off just a little increment as it ran ahead. And all the other dogs would begin to follow it as well. One inexperienced driver who did not know the background of this dog began to go off for the distant direction and he traveled for many hours. And then to his shock, he saw ahead what looked strangely familiar. Yes, he had gone full circle and was back to his very starting point. So gradual, so subtle, he did not even recognize it until he had gone full circle all the way back to where he had started. So too, Christian, all forms of compromise take us far from the course of God's blessing. Far from the course of God's blessing. The fourth negative from this text in verse 4 that David declares, he says, a perverse heart shall depart from me. A perverse heart shall depart from me. Perverse there means a twisted heart. A twisted heart. It's the person who at one point looks like he loves God. And then later on is beginning to make concessions with sin. So often workers are told they must compromise their standards if they'll get ahead with the company, if they'll be successful. Just, you know, fudge a little bit on your time report. It's okay. Everybody does it. And it's just the way it works. We have a guy like that in our church in Michigan. And I've talked to him. I said, listen, no question what God wants. If it means not getting the promotion means getting fired. You put down what you worked and leave it to God. That's what you have to do. No compromise wherever you are. That's what David's saying here. A twisted heart will be far from him. Fifthly, David vows, I will know no evil. I will know no evil. Evil here speaks of what is worthless and what is hurtful. And therefore, David is making a pledge. He's pledging in his thoughts, in his conversation, in his planning, in every facet of his life to be as far away from evil as possible. I don't want to get near the stuff. I hate it. I want to be away from it. This is the pattern that David is establishing, establishing in his home and in his heart. It's what caused him to show in practice what he committed to in his life. And let's look at the practice here. Amazing, verses 5 through 8. Look at how it works out now. Here's where David's life is lived out, not only in the home of integrity, but also in his kingdom. He now he identifies specific sins that he will not tolerate, not only at home, but now in his presence in his kingdom. First of all, he says slander. Slander, that's tearing someone down by speaking evil against them. Slander has become so acceptable in our day. We see it constantly between politicians as they tear each other behind their backs, even face to face. Yet David knows that slander is a vicious sin. And he refuses to give any, any pass to those who in his kingdom jockey for positions by tearing each other down. Instead, look at verse 5. He says, whoever secretly slanders his neighbor, him I will destroy. Him I will destroy. 
The Hebrew word there doesn't necessarily mean to kill the person. It means to silence them, to banish them from his kingdom. He's committed to having no slander around him, not tolerate those who slander others in his presence. We too also must remember and be reminded of the destructiveness of slander and gossip. It's a pernicious sin. Many Jews believed that a slander injured three different people at the same time. That the slander injured himself, his hearer, and the person he slandered. But there's a fourth. We must remember. Most importantly, every time that we slander anyone in any way, there's a fourth person that's affected, and that is God who hears it all. Proverbs 10, verse 18 tells us, A slander is foolish. He who spreads slander is a fool. Listen, I've been a fool in my life. God has convicted me. It's not just them out there. Yes, pastors too at times sin in terms of saying what we are not to say. And we've torn someone down without thinking carefully. 1 Peter 2, verse 1. Peter says there, we are to put aside all slander. Put aside. Be done with it, the apostle Peter says there. Related to slanderers, there's a second group. David vows to keep at arm's distance in his kingdom. There in verse 5. He says, no one who has a haughty look and an arrogant heart will I endure. David's saying, I will not tolerate people around me who are full of themselves. Why? It's not just because they could likely become political insubordinates. It's because primarily these are those who refuse to submit to God. He says, these people I will not have around me because their problem in their heart is they are not submitted to God's leadership in their life. King Solomon understood this. In Proverbs 6, he makes a list of things that God hates. Remember those? There are six things that God hates. He has seven which are an abomination to him. And what's the first at the top of the list? It is pride, a haughty heart. God hates pride. And we need to remember that. Remember 1 Peter 5, verse 5. That God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Isn't that great? That God's grace is dumped upon your life, Christian, when you walk in humility. And yet he is opposed to us when we walk and tolerate pride. The worldly-minded around us are so often focused on themselves, concerned about looking cool, looking hip, looking modern. Those who please God are concerned about what pleases him and what is humble before him, what is acceptable before him, walking in humility before him. And see, David's saying here, these are the kind of people I want around me in my life those who walk in humbly before God. David models what he teaches and writes about. In verse 6, he says this, verse 6 of our psalm, Psalm 101, My eye shall be upon the faithful of the land, that they may dwell with me. He who walks in a blameless way is the one who will minister to me. This is David writing about who will serve him, who he will choose to be his servants. Now, this is wonderful. Remember at the beginning of the psalm in verse 2, he says, I will give heed to the, he, to the blameless way. That's David saying that. And now he's living it out. He's saying, that's the kind of people I want around me in my kingdom. I will choose people whose lives are marked by being blameless. They will serve in my court. Christians, there's an encouragement here for us. We must surround our lives with those who are godly, 
those who are blameless and love God and worship God, those who mean business in living out a life that pleases him. We must remember that we are affected by those around us deeply, deeply. Parents, I beg of you, in your parenting, watch who your kids hang out with. I'm thinking particularly outside the church fellowship, of course. Guard their hearts, choose them early on, how to pick friends that are good friends, that will love God and help them love God also. So important, so vital, so foundational for our lives. And not just for kids, but also for us as parents. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 33 warns us about friends. Do not be deceived. In other words, don't be tricked, don't be duped. We often are. Bad company corrupts good morals. Bad company corrupts good morals. You hang out with, you talk with, and I'm not talking about evangelism. We need to be those that preach the gospel to the lost. We're talking about friends who we hang out with for friendship. Bad company corrupts good morals. Those that are far from God will pull people away from God subtly and very, in a very dangerous way. Guard the hearts of your children. Guard your own heart. None of us live in a vacuum. Spending time being influenced by godless people will draw us far from hearts that love to worship him. David knows that truth, and therefore he commits himself to radical measures. Look in verse 7, what he says there. He says, he who practices deceit shall not dwell within my house. He who speaks falsehood shall not maintain his position before me. This is incredible. He goes after it. He says, he says, I will jettison from my presence and from my kingdom all those who are fakes and counterfeits that don't mean business in living before God. He's making a gutsy statement. He expels from his presence and from his kingdom those who don't, do not live in integrity before God. Church, it's impossible for us to hate lies and love truth too much. We cannot hate lies and love truth too much. Just like in gardening, the wise gardener feeds the plant yet rips out the weeds. That's a constant commitment. We feed the good plants, we tear out the bad plants. We deal with sin and get rid of it. We pursue integrity and holiness. In the 18th century, there's a song written called Thou Hidden Love of God. And in the song, the writer begs God to take from his heart anything that would take him from God. He writes this. Is there a thing beneath the sun that strives with thee, my heart, to share? Ah, tear it thence and reign alone, the Lord of every motion there. Then shall my heart from earth be free when it is found repose in thee. Can you say that tonight? God, if there's any compromise or any lack of integrity in my heart, God, rip it from me. Take it from me, show me it, and deliver me from that. Living with integrity before God means loving God by hating evil. It's a daily commitment to wage war with sin. King David bound himself to such radical measures in opposing sinful influences. Notice in verse 8, look how he ends this. Beautiful, so strong, so specific. Every morning I will destroy all the wicked of the land so as to cut off from the city of the Lord all those who do iniquity. This is intense. 
He's saying he's on a campaign not to slay but to silence sinners. He says, every day I'll do this. How did it work out? It would have been like this. The case was in the Near Eastern time, the kings, and David would have been a part of this, they had their court sessions in the morning hours. They would decide the prayers for the kingdom in the morning hours during those sessions. And David says at the top of his to-do list, as it were, on his agenda would be, first and foremost, he would deliver from his kingdom those who had contaminated it with sin. He'd say, this guy, this lady, we need to get rid of them. They will influence our kingdom and bring sin to this kingdom, and we cannot tolerate this. He says, every morning I will destroy the wicked of the land. I will not have it. I will not tolerate it. What we see here in David's heart is the same heartbeat that he has in Psalm 139 in verses 21 and 22. There he says this. He's praying to God. He says, do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? Isn't that incredible? He says, God, I hate those you hate. And do, not, do I not loathe those who rise up against you? And then he answers his question to God. I hate them with the utmost hatred. They have become my enemies. These are strong words. God, if someone is your enemy, they're my enemy. I loathe them. I deplore them because, God, they'll take me far from you. We desperately need this sense of no compromise, all out living before our God, if we're to worship him as he wants us to. To be done with anything that would be a taint of sin, any closets where there are some skeletons hanging there that we kind of leave to the side and ignore them. They all must go before God who sees it all. Beloved, we need the message of Psalm 101 today. To be those who live lives of praise to God, who pattern our lives after absolute integrity before him. Praise God, we have examples. We have brothers and sisters in the church who live this out, and we can be encouraged by. We need to remember that and be encouraged when we see that. Most of you, I believe, know John Coe, brother in the Lord. I love John. I've known him for years. We were in college ministry together, and he's just a great example to me. Shortly after college, he applied to FedEx to do an interview there. I don't know if you guys know what happened in this situation. Incredible. He says he goes in, and he went through the application process, and they told him, okay, the first thing you have to do is you have to take this test in a room all by yourself. They said it's kind of unusual, but it works like this. There's going to be a tape recorder, the old system where you push the button down, you know, it plays the, the cassette tape. They said there's going to be a string of numbers that you'll hear, and then it'll beep. And after you hear a beep, it'll, you stop the thing, and then write down the numbers that you hear. And then they said this, then, then you'll start again, but they says, by no means must you ever reverse the tape. You cannot rewind the tape. And so the tape began, the first four, two, three, seven, one. Stop tape, beep. He writes this down, and then it continues, and then the numbers begin to be longer and longer and longer and longer. And then before he knew it, it was so long, the tape would stop, and he's thinking, I can't even remember the first number. So what would John do? He wouldn't rewind the tape. He just wrote down any number that come to his head. <laughs> any number. He would just have these numbers written down. Well, this thing went on for a while, and then finally came to an end, and he was so frustrated, so exasperated. And then finally he goes to his friend who got him to apply to FedEx and he says, what in the world are they trying to do? What's the point of this test? Do you have to be a genius to apply for FedEx? <laughs> and then his friend told him this. He said, John, it's not about the numbers at all. This is a test of integrity. They were watching to see if the person would rewind that tape. 
would go back to the beginning to get those numbers or whether the person would just write what they can remember and have and show a life of integrity. We can live a life of integrity before God as he's called us to. David did that. Other believers do that around us. This psalm doesn't point to David. It points ultimately forward to Jesus Christ who was tempted in every way as we are yet without sin. Jesus is the model of integrity before us and Jesus is the one who allows us, who gives the strength to say no to sin and live a life of no compromise before him. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this text of scripture. Father, we thank you for your living word. Father, we need your help. Father, we are bombarded by all the values, all the hype, all the stuff of the world that tells us we're missing something. Oh, Father, thank you that you and Christ have given us all that we need to live a life of godliness before you. And Father, we now, before you, commit ourselves to that. Father, would you sear to our hearts these truths that we have studied together. Father, that we would seek to be, as David, sensitive to sin, that we'd walk by your spirit, that we'd be those that confess sin quickly, that notice and see when there are compromises that we're beginning to make with sin. Oh, God, make us a holy people. God, make us people that are set apart for you and you alone. God, to be those that worship you fully and wholly and purely. Oh, Father, do a work in our lives. Father, show us the cross. Show us the forgiveness there. Show us what Christ did so that we don't have to live in sin. Oh, Father, we do confess any sin that you bring to mind. Father, in our homes, in our marriages, with our children, with siblings, on the job, in ministry, Father, we agree with you that those are unacceptable. We turn from them and we thank you that your blood that was shed shed on the cross makes provision for that forgiveness. Oh, Father, thank you that we can walk in newness of life with clean hearts before you. Father, we commit ourselves to that each day forever. We pray in Christ's name, amen.